Amen. Please be seated. We began the service with singing Psalm 2 because it does relate to our text this evening, Psalm 110. And so does the gospel passage from Matthew chapter 22 and the two passages from Hebrews. So these are all related to one another and particularly to Psalm 110 which has been our Psalm of the Month all month long. Today's the last Sunday. <clears throat> so we are in the courts of the temple in Jerusalem on the week in which our Savior was betrayed and then crucified. And he has been under attack uh, from the Jewish leaders, and we pick it up at Matthew 22:41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, "What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he?" They said to him, "The son of David." He said to them, "Then how is it that David in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? And then in Hebrews, we could read uh, quite a few passages in Hebrews, but we'll limit ourselves. Uh, Hebrews 1, the first nine verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? We heard that in Psalm 2. Or again, I will be a... To him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, 
Let all the angels worship, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We could go on, but we won't. Hebrews 5. Chapter 1 concerned the exaltation of Christ. Chapter 5, his priesthood. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, the priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and in and he says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, just one last, the verses that end chapter 4, verse 11 and following. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I'm sorry, verse 14 is where I want to be. That's a good exhortation too. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Before we read our text for tonight, is that mine? No. Before we read our text for tonight, let's pray together. Lord, already we have heard much from your word and now we are about to read more, and we bow and acknowledge that this is your word, not merely the words of men. And it's your word spoken so long ago by the Holy Spirit, but spoken for your people down through the ages and around the world, including us. And so, Lord, we pray that we may not just hear and read but that your word may be impressed upon us, may build us up in faith, uh, may strengthen our confidence in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. 
<clears throat> the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 110 is attributed to David. Uh, scholars debate some of the attributions of the Psalms, whether they really are to the from the person who is at the head. But our Lord Jesus himself spoke of this as being David's Psalm. David spoke by the Spirit when he wrote this Psalm, according to Jesus. It's an amazing Psalm. It is, I think, the most cited, alluded to uh, Old Testament passage in the New Testament. If it isn't the most, it's the second most. I tried to count once. And, well, uh, it's amazing. But we may miss the fact that it's amazing because it is, probably to most of us, a familiar song. And its point Namely, that the coming Messiah, this is from David's point of view, the coming Messiah, descended from King David, will be both king and priest. This is also familiar to most of us. And so we don't think of it as so amazing when we see it in Psalm 110. Our Lord Jesus taught his disciples on more than one occasion that all of Old Testament scripture spoke of him, pointed forward to him, prepared for his coming. And that all of the Old Testament scriptures are being fulfilled by him. And with regard to a number of Old Testament passages, especially found in the Psalms, like Psalm 110, Psalm 2, which we read at the beginning, or saying, uh, passages in Isaiah and so on. Jewish scholars, Jewish scribes and rabbis already saw them as predicting the coming Messiah. They had many discussions and debates about what they would mean and what should be expected. And Psalm 110 is one of those passages that uh, were regarded by the Jews as pointing to the coming anointed king and savior, the Messiah. So in the temple on Easter week, when Jesus is being challenged with questions from the Jewish leaders who are his enemies, he turns the tables on them and challenges them to explain the puzzle of Psalm 110. 
How can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? Now, he was not presenting a new or radical idea, you see. They already thought of Psalm 110 this way. But he puts a puzzle to them that they cannot answer. Now, what then is so amazing about Psalm 110? First, and we'll look at this first, first <clears throat> is the puzzle presented by verse 1. Now, the puzzle that David's, the scholars, the rabbis, and so on opposing Jesus uh, could not solve. But Jesus is the solution. Second, the psalm is amazing because it promises that the Messiah, the royal son of King David, would not only be a king, but would also be a priest. If the Jewish scholars had not been able to read that in plain words in Psalm 110, they would not have believed it possible. David quotes Israel's covenant Lord in the first verse. The Lord, Yahweh. Now, in our English Bibles, you probably have that just as all capital letters, L-O-R-D, all caps. When you're, you probably know this. When you're reading your Old Testament and your English Bible and, and the, and the name Lord is there in all capital letters. Uh, it is the translators, the editor's way of signifying that this is the covenant name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so the covenant Lord of Israel is saying to David's Lord, only here the word Lord is not Yahweh. It's a Hebrew word that means sovereign, ruler, lord, person in authority over me, a superior. So David quotes, the Lord himself is saying, Yahweh himself is saying, that David's ruler, David's superior, will sit at God's right hand. So who then is David's ruler? Who then is David's sovereign if it's not Yahweh, the God who made heaven and earth, the covenant God, who saved Israel out of Egypt and kept all, kept all of his promises to the Father and established the kingdom? Who is this Lord, lowercase letters? If it's not Yahweh, but they are distinct, aren't they? Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. <clears throat> There's a distinction between them. The puzzle here is similar to what we read in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's distinction. And the Word was God. It's a puzzle. Well, I think we can solve both puzzles, <clears throat> but 
David himself was never spoken of as sitting at God's right hand. So whoever this one is, is much, much higher than David, or he will be. The Jewish leaders rightly understood it to refer to the royal descendant of David who would fulfill the promises of a future king anointed to save God's people. This royal son of David will be exalted far above his ancestor David. To the right hand of God. What is that? Well, in the ancient world, being seated at the right hand of the supreme ruler was being the ruler. Great kings enjoy the privileges of being great kings and their vizier who sits at their right hand runs the kingdom. And I think that's perhaps the cultural background to this idea of being enthroned at the right hand of Yahweh. <clears throat> it's a place of rule over all of God's works. The vizier of Almighty God, if you will. And this is what stumped David's opponents in the temple courts that last week. How could great King David, how could his son be his superior? be his Lord. Now, Jesus puts the puzzle to them this way, uh, based on a Jewish way of thinking, and that is that the Son can never be greater than the Father. Jesus' enemies could not answer the riddle. They couldn't solve it. However, their success that plotting the death of Jesus would be used by his father to bring about through his triumphant resurrection and his ascension to glory the fulfillment not only of Psalm 110 but all the scriptures of God promising salvation. The great royal prophecies of the coming of the messianic king <clears throat> Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Daniel 7, 14 and 15, etc., etc., etc. All of those great royal promises had not yet been given when David wrote Psalm 110. How would David, how would King David, who had conquered by God's help, how had would how would King David who had conquered all the surrounding kingdoms, Moab, Ammon, Syria, Edom, Edom, Philistines. How would he, how would he think that a descendant of his would be so much greater than he is that he would sit at God's right hand? What would put that thought in his head? Well, it was not David's idea. And our Lord is clear about that when he says to his opponents in the temple, 
How is it then that David, in or by the Spirit, called him Lord? The impossibility of thinking that David would envision a descendant of his being exalted to the right hand of the ruler of the universe in heaven is certainly a strong apologetic for the inspiration of Scripture by God. And there's more. All right, it was God's plan and purpose <coughs> fulfilled in the fullness of time he raised Jesus from the dead and set him at the right hand of the majesty on high. We read that in Hebrews 1. It's a theme that runs through Hebrews. Paul refers to it. The New Testament is full of it. That Jesus is the one seated at the right hand of God. Yes, Yahweh by his spirit put the vision in Paul's head and moved David to make a song of it. So when the Israelites sang the Psalms and sang Psalm 110, they were singing this. And maybe they scratched their head and said, I wonder what this means. But obviously they didn't solve that problem because when Jesus put it to them, they didn't have the answer. But we have the answer. Because by faith we see our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, sitting enthroned at the right hand of the Father, he is the head over all things, reigning over history, over nations, over rulers, even over demons, on behalf of his church, his body. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he said. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What great comfort comes to us. Because David's son was David's Lord and exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Now, there are two aspects of his rule from heaven that are before us in this psalm. <clears throat> the first is the warlike, the warlike, or the, the warfare verses. Hmm. How we read them somewhere. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, Yahweh God says to David's exalted son yeah, rule in the midst of your enemies and he says again later in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now here it is Adonai that is used, but I think it's still referring, it is still referring to God. God the Lord is at your right hand, speaking to David's son. Is at your right hand. He the king, the anointed king, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink by the brook 
uh, from the book, Brook by the Way, Therefore He Will Lift Up His Head. That last verse, a little puzzling, but I think the picture is of the mighty king leading his army and, and, and just no opposition, even beginning to succeed. He's thirsty, he's free to stoop down, drink from the brook, lift his head in triumph and victory and proceed on his way. It's an image that's set in Old Testament uh, times warfare, but it has to do with the kingly work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this doesn't sound like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, does it? Conquer your enemies. Rule in their midst. Shatter kings. Fill their countries with corpses. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Mm. Well, Jesus did come the first time to this world. The Son of God came into this world the first time. Humble and meek to accomplish salvation for God's people. He embodied that as he rode into Jerusalem on this last week, on the last week, riding on a donkey. But Jesus is, in fact, now the ruler and the judge of the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth. They're all subject to him. And he does pour out judgments on nations and rulers. What was true in the Old Testament is true now. It is God who raises men up and who casts them down. It is God who blesses nations and God who curses nations. And Jesus Christ is the one at the Father's right hand who is the one ruling and judging. We're a nation. And what does Psalm 2 say? Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. For his anger can be kindled suddenly. But blessed are all those who put their trust in him. He will judge on the last day. In the Gospel of John, he says that. In Acts, the Apostle Paul declares to the Athenians, God has appointed a man who will judge the world in righteousness. In Revelation chapter 6, has some pretty stark passages. We see in Revelation, rather, in chapter 6, we see people who have not ever come to repentance and not ever come to having peace with God through faith in Christ. And as he appears as judge, they are terrified. They cry out for the mountains and the rocks to bury them from the sight of him who sits on the throne. It's a terrible sight for them. We could read Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. A truly bloody passage about the outpouring of the wrath of God from him who sits upon the white horse and a sharp two-edged sword proceeds from his mouth, judging the nations. That is, that is 
the King of Psalm 110. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all it says about him. What else is said? Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments or arrayed, robed in holiness. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Again, Hebrew there is a little difficult. But I think the picture is... Maybe you've had this experience uh, being somewhere where you, you walk out on a, a deck and stretched out before you is, is a lawn and it's covered with dew. Millions and millions of drops of dew glistening under the dawn sun. And the people of Jesus are like that. This multitude glistening before him. And what has he done? He's conquered us. He hasn't conquered us by the sword of judgment. He's conquered us by grace. That is why your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. Many years ago, I was visiting a friend of mine who was an OP minister of her classmates at Westminster. And uh, he sprung on me that during the service there would be a question period so people could ask King any questions. <laughs> I didn't know he was going to do that. And somebody said, well, this church talks about God deciding who's going to be saved. And that doesn't seem fair to me. What do you think? I almost said fair schmear uh, in a sarcastic way. But I said, you know, I am eternally grateful that God did not step aside because in my wicked free will, I would never have called upon him. But it pleased him to invade me and conquer me by his grace and make me his. That's the picture of verse 3. We are the conquered subjects, the willing and glad and thankful conquered subjects of King Jesus. Well, okay, that's the first amazing thing about this psalm. And the next, well, it's verses 4 and 5. That this royal son of David's will not only be a king, he will also be a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's a pretty solid oath. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, according to the law of Moses, which is the constitution of Israel given by God, according to the law of Moses, who could be priests? Levites descended from Aaron. You can say it out loud. <laughs> Levites descended from Aaron. And only Levites descended from Aaron. And 
in David's lifetime, there was, there was a stark lesson about this uh, having to do with King Saul. Saul was going to have to go to war. Samuel the prophet and priest, he was both prophet and priest, Samuel told him, wait for me at such and such a place. When I come, we'll offer sacrifice and, enter, and, and pray for God's blessing. Well, Samuel thought Saul was taking... Saul thought Samuel was taking too long to get there. So Saul took it on himself to offer the sacrifice and to pray for God's blessing on their endeavor. He who disregards the law of God, even his prayer is an abomination. That's Proverbs 15. And then Samuel appears. What is this that you have done? What is it? This, this act of arrogance on your part. And so Samuel pronounces a judgment from God. He says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It wasn't just, though, that he disobeyed Samuel, Samuel's specific device, command, but he also violated the requirement that priestly work could only be done by priests descended from Aaron. So, you know, that was in David's mind. And I think it was in David's mind when he prayed in Psalm 51, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, which he had done from Saul. And from the time of King David on, who were to be the kings of Israel? They were to be descendants of King David. God swore that. In a covenant oath, you can read it in 2 Samuel 7, you can read it in Psalm 89. And so the two offices, prophet, or the two offices, king and priest, were to be kept separate. Again, later on, when King Uzziah violated this precept by going into the temple and burning incense on the altar of incense, what happened to him? The priests came in and rebuked him. And he was angry with the priests. And God struck him with leprosy. And he had to live outside the city, and his son had to reign in his place. In other words, it was a pretty serious distinction between the king and the priest. So, back to David, back to Psalm 110. What could, what would or could David have possibly imagined that his royal heir, how could, how could he have imagined it, that his royal heir would be a king and a priest? Was he in his bedroom at night reading Genesis 14 one day, the account of Abraham and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who was also a priest of the Most High God. 
Was he reading about Melchizedek today and said, ah, now here's a great idea. King and priest, one office. Let's call a council and revise the constitution of Israel to accomplish that. <laughs> that never, never, ever would have occurred to David. And so how did he say this? How did this vision come into his head and end up in a song for Israel to sing? Well, because God, by the Holy Spirit, put it in his head and directed him. This was God's plan for the saving of his people and for the exaltation of his great name. God gave David the vision of the future king also being a priest, not a descendant from Aaron, but of the sort that Melchizedek was. And I don't want to take 20 more minutes to go through that, so read, read the rest of Hebrews, especially chapter 7. This was God's plan. It was never David's. And it's a strong apologetic, again, for the divine inspiration of Psalm 110. There's no explanation for this psalm apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And also what an important preparation for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, to be both the anointed Savior, King, and God's High Priest. Because how is it that we are saved? Not just by the exercise of royal power, but by the offering presented to the Holy God, the just and holy God, on our behalf of a perfect offering. That is, Jesus offering himself. He knew no sin, yet he became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All those Old Testament sacrifices, bulls and goats and so on, their blood could not atone for sin. Hebrews very clear on that. Those were pictures of the Son of God offering himself up on the cross to atone for our sins, to make propitiation between us and God. And then, at the Father's right hand, not only reigning as king over the universe, but also without fail, constantly interceding on our behalf. King and priest, for the accomplishment of our salvation. Because he is at the Father's right hand, never ever having sinned in the least, he is able to be our great high priest and able to intercede for us with absolute perfection and power. And he now calls us to come to his Father's throne in confident prayer. We read that at the end of Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest. We do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, 
Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. The throne of God is not for God's people, is not for those who came willingly, made willing by the Holy Spirit, who came willingly to Jesus for salvation. The throne of God is not for us a throne of wrath and judgment, though we deserve it. It is a throne of grace. Do we sin? <laughs> do we ever? And what do we deserve? Wrath, justice, ejection. What do we need? Mercy. What does the Father dispense when we cry out to him through Jesus? Mercy, pardon, forgiveness, renewed peace with God. Are we weak and tempted? Ever ready to give in to sin? Oh yes. I am. You are. What do we need? Not condemnation, which we deserve, but grace. A mighty grace. A grace that is not just good thoughts from God toward us, but great power from God in us. Grace upon grace. The gift of the Spirit of God dwelling in us and working within us to restore us when we fall, to strengthen us when we are tempted, to enable us to grow in faith and in the ability to give glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that every word of yours is true like silver, refined six times over, even seven times over, without flaw. And that as the promises you gave in the Old Testament are abundantly fulfilled in Christ, so we know that all, all of your promises will be kept. We thank you. We thank you for the confidence you give us that we do not need to run away and hide when we sin and fall and fail, that we may run to you for your mercy and for your grace. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.